This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 19, Structuralism and Anthropology. All right. Um, so I, I got up at, at, um, at 3.30 in the morning to go to a conference in, in Mykolaiv, which is a, a, a city in eastern Ukraine that's really been through hell. Um, I obviously didn't actually get on a plane at 3.30 in the morning because I'm here with you, but I did, I did get on Zoom at 3.30 in the morning. Um, not that I was able to say brilliant things at 3.30 in the morning, but as a gesture of solidarity. So I'm like, I'm feeling a little bit weak, so I'm, I'm going to avoid walking around the stage. I'm just going to sit here. So <laughs> don't be alarmed. Um, yeah. It is kind of amazing that you can do this at Zoom. Like, I couldn't actually get to Eastern Ukraine. It was a perfectly reasonable time there. You know, I was supposed to speak at what would have been 11 a.m. had I been there in person, which is a totally civilized hour. But it was 4 a.m. because I was at New Haven. Um, yeah, and as I mean, this conference is going on, and there's like the room full of people who are actually there, and the air raid sirens go off, you know, and the person who's the moderator very calmly says, okay, let's make a collective decision. You know, would we like to take a break and go to the bomb shelter, or do we want to just keep going? And everyone in the room is like, let's keep going. And I'm like, shouldn't you go to the bomb shelter? <laughs> I would go to the bomb shelter. <laughs> um, but they bravely just kept going. Um, all right. Um, and actually, one of the things I was talking to them about, um, which had to do with culture and outreach, was about this idea of encounter, um, which I am to some extent borrowing from Yusuf Tischner, the Polish philosopher and theologian who took a lot of inspiration from Levinas. Um, and it's this idea, again, as we talked about in Levinas, that the critical moment of drama, and in some ways, you know, the, the grounding point of all ontology is the, the encounter between human beings, the face-to-face, -face, the subject-to-subject. -subject. And the story I'm going to tell you today is not about encounter as theory, but it will be about a history of structuralism and structural anthropology that comes about because Alexander Coire introduces Roman Jakobson to Claude Levi-Strauss in New York um, when they are both emigres from the war. So I will, I will get to that in, in a few minutes. But if those, if those men had not met at that moment, you know, we would, there would be a, a whole intellectual history that never occurred. Um, Okay, so I want to I remind you where I left you off with revisionist Marxism and this Heideggerian existentialist reading of Hegel. Um, and one thing I want to throw out, because it might help some of you relate to it, um, is that the revisionist Marxist moment in many ways is very, very close to a lot of what we talk about in contemporary times with respect to critical race theory. Um, if we kind of bracket ideas, specific ideas about the American history of slavery and race, the idea that we are always already thrown into historical circumstances and structures that predate us. We don't act from a tabula rasa. And this is the Heideggerian impulse. We don't, you know, we don't come into the world as if it's a blank slate and everything is equally possible. You know, we're always already in a place, in a time, 
and that place and time are shaped by structures that predate us. But that does not mean that we are then a helpless prisoner of those structures because we are interacting with them and we're shaping them even as they're shaping us. So it's a model of embeddedness. We're embedded in historical structures, but we are also always already responsible agents. And it was that attempt to keep both those things, to kind of keep, to keep history as constitutive of philosophy, you know, to keep the significance of, of historical circumstances, and also to keep a very robust concept of a responsible human subject. And so for those of you who are working on American history or American politics, you'll, I think you'll see some parallels there. This interactive model, model of embeddedness. We are always already in the world. There's no outside the world that we start and then we come into a frictionless world. No, we're always already in the world. You know, the world is always pushing back against us and we're always pushing back against them. Um, and one way of thinking about this is that it's not, it's not about guilt, it's about responsibility. Um, and a lot could be said about this, but I will put that aside because I want to kind of move you on. Um, I want to transition you into structuralism. So Marxism is arguably, you know, a version of structuralism, you know, in the sense that pieces and parts fit together and you need to understand how all those parts fit together in order to understand the whole concept, in order to understand anything. You know, this goes back to Hegel, the true is the whole. You know, the idea is that, you know, you are either, you know, an employee of a factory or you're the owner of the factory. But those relationships, th those, those relationships are relational in the sense that they're mutually defined. You know, and so the relationship between terms and how all those terms fit together in structure is very important. Um, so today I'm going to kind of keep with that theme and I want you, we're going to focus on thinking about structure. So the key word is structure. How do we think about structure? How do we conceive about structure? And structural anthropology is one form of, of structuralism in some sense an, an example to give you a sense of what this whole kind of huge school of thought is about, which is going to then come to in some ways dominate a lot of intellectual history in the second half of the 20th century. Um, the two, by the way, as a footnote, I think there are two Kowalkowski texts that I assigned kind of at the end of the course, almost as a kind of re overview, re two short overview review readings about different schools of thought by Leszek Kowalkowski, wonderful, wonderful um, Polish philosopher and just a wonderful, beautiful writer and a friend of Isaiah Berlin's, um, The Legend of Emperor Kennedy and A Theory of Non-Gardening. Um, and and Kolokowski is always a bit ironic and sarcastic as well. So if you're stuck on structuralism, you might want to jump ahead and read those because they kind of review structuralism and that might help you contextualize them. Of course, you're always welcome to read anything early in general. You're welcome to reread anything we've read for other parts of the course, but when I, it might be especially relevant this week. Um, structuralism is going to be yet another response to the death of God you know, an attempt to fill the void left after religion's departure. Another attempt to resolve this feeling of alienation and groundlessness, you know, that comes with, with the death of God. You know, and we've seen now many, many versions, 
you know, of alienation and groundlessness as we move through. You know, are we alienated because we're alienated from the products of our labor, because our labor is turning us into commodities? Are we alienated for, for Hannah Arendt, as she explains in a wonderful um, immediate post-war lecture called What is Existential Philosophy? Are we alienated because of Kant? Because he severs being from thought and says the ding on zik, the thing itself, is precisely what we can never reach. I mean, Arendt, who loves Kant, you know, really blames him for this and says that gap between subject and object, you know, between ourselves, which can never completely reach the world, that alienates us from the world. God was the bridge, you know, and so all of this preoccupation about alienation and how do we get a grounding? How do we get a grounding so that we have some firm place to stand to connect with that world? You know, again, for Husserl, it was intentionality. That was the bridge, you know, and our clarity was going to come from the reduction. Um, so structuralism is going to be a, a new response to the same set of problems. Um, it will be a new way of dealing with both teleology and subjectivity. But this time, it's, this time we're going to diminish the importance of both teleology and subjectivity. In some ways, we're going to bracket both the subject and, and history. Um, so we're going to diminish the role of both. Um, think of it as a new lens through which to understand the world and our place in it. And I know, like, like Husserl, they use a lot of these visual metaphors. You can tell I've read too much Husserl in the past couple decades. But think of all of these things like, as you're trying to understand them. And Kolkowski is very good on this. It's like you're trying on glasses. Now, all of you are probably young enough that you don't need different kinds of glasses, or maybe you only need one kind of glasses. But you'll see. <laughs> but, but imagine like some kinds that you put on one pair of glasses and suddenly things that are far away are very clear, but things that are close up might be blurry. You put on another pair of glasses and that might clarify things that are close up, but things that are far away are blurry, you know, and so you're trying on these different pairs of glasses and so certain, certain distances, you know, certain focal points will become clarified with each one. We don't, we've never come up with a perfect one. <laughs> Um, so you have to kind of put aside that sense that you're going to find the perfect one, but experiment with them, you know, and structuralism is a new set of glasses. It's a new lens to understand the world. Um, so the revisionist Marxist were looking, taking, you know, Marxism, which is a profoundly structural worldview and way of understanding the world, um, and they want to inject it with a lot of humanism, you know, hence this Marxist humanism. Um, how do we get a more robust role, a deeper, fleshier role for subjectivity within Marxism? Now, structuralism, in some sense, is going to, to make the opposite move. It's going to be non-humanist, in some ways anti-humanist. And when I say that, I don't mean it in a normative sense. So I don't mean anti-humanist in the sense of anti-humanitarian, advocating cruelty, sadism, like bad things. No, this is anti-humanism in a purely descriptive sense in the sense that the individual human subject is not at the center of, of the way in which we understand the world. You know, it's not, it's not the thing that holds the system together. So it's not, it, it's not that it's negative, it's not that it's cruel, it's not that it wants to kill people, like nothing like that. It's just, you know, it's non-humanist, it's even anti-humanist in that the human subject is not the source of meaning um, in, in this, this school of thought. Um, it's very anti-romantic that way as well. There's still a lot of enlightenment rationality, but there's none of this romantic will. Um, 
The primary variable here is, is not going to be the movement of time or human subjectivity. It's going to be a system, a structure, parts fitting together. Um, and this idea that every, the world can be understood as a complex system of signs that are going to fit together. And in some ways, you can go back to the Enlightenment metaphor of a puzzle, like the world is a jigsaw puzzle and pieces are fitting together. So it's going to be a complex system and pieces are going to fit together. Um, the inspiration for all forms of structuralism is linguistics is structural linguistics, which I started to talk to you about when we talked about the avant-garde, um, and I'm gonna go back to that you know, in another moment or two. But in some ways, you can also think of this as an attempt to rethink everything about the human condition through the lens of language, or through the model of language, through the analogy of a language, to try to rethink everything in terms of how language works. Um, but it's going to be inspired really by the same schools of thought that inspired the avant-garde much earlier. So I'm going to take you back to that Swiss linguist, um, Fernanda Cessor, uh, born in 1857, died in 1913. Um, and he became famous by lecturing. He was lecturing in Switzerland. And as I think I mentioned, his famous book, which becomes like the, the original, the ore source, you know, the original source for structuralism, he did not even write. Um, it's basically a collection of his students' lecture notes that is put together after his death. So he dies in 1913, and the book comes out in 1916. Um, and so if you, you pick it up and read it, you're like, well, didn't he have a good editor? And this seems kind of awkward. And like, well, that's because they're essentially students are using their notes to try to put together the lectures. So the ideas are there, but it doesn't really function very well aesthetically in the sense of a book. Okay. Um, and he just, he makes a few critical points, you know, and again, those are points that are going to seem kind of banal, but they're going to take on profound significance once people meditate on them for a while. Um, the first thing is kind of the obvious thing, but often it's the obvious thing that turns out to be the thing no one notices and is the most important thing to say, that language considered unto and for itself is the only true object of linguistic study. So we look at language on its own. The next thing he says, which will again sound like nothing, but is going to turn out to be a revolution, um, language is a form, not a substance. So again, remember, we had that relationship between form and content that was important to the avant-garde and an inversion of the hierarchy between form and content until form became everything and content became relatively insignificant. Um, that was at the center of the avant-garde, this obsession with form. Well, here you get language is a form, not a substance. Again, it's one of those things you just put in your head and you live with it for a while and it starts to like slowly take on implications. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll read you a little bit of Cicero's quotes. Language itself is a form, not a substance. The importance of this truth cannot be overemphasized. For all our mistakes of terminology, all our incorrect ways of designating things belonging to the language originate in our unwittingly supposing we are dealing with a substance when we deal with linguistic phenomenon. Okay. So language for Cesor is a science of form and it's a system of differences 
rather than a system of substances. So meaning is all going to be about difference. Um, that's the next point. Um, linguistic units, linguistic signs are of a dual nature. You know, they are comprised of something that is sometimes translated as signal and signification, sometimes as sig uh, signifier and signified. I'm going to use signifier and signified in English. I think that's the best of our options. But basically refers to the difference between a word and a thing. So I'm going to keep bringing you back to the fact that there's like, there's the word tree or the word cat. And then there's like that furry creature outside who is the actual cat. So that relationship between a word and the referent, the thing to which it's referring. Um, okay, and, and a linguistic sign comprises both the parts. So when Saussure says sign, he means signifier and signify together are the linguistic sign. Um, but a lot of what we're going to be doing is disentangling those two things and thinking about them separately. Which again, remember, this is what the avant-garde does. The idea that you can disentangle, you can disarticulate the word from the, from the content that it represents. Um, and then his point, you know, that again will be kind of revelatory and almost fetishized by a lot of these practitioners, the linguistic sign, the relationship between signifier and signified is arbitrary. This is huge. This is like, this is one of the most radical things. The relationship between signifier and signified is arbitrary. That is, there is no law of physics that suggests that the combination of letters and sounds that spell out and sound like cat need to refer to that furry creature outside. I'm assuming there are cats outside, but actually there aren't really very many cats running around this campus. Um, but surely some of you have contact with cats. Um, there's no, no law of physics that, that makes that connection. We know that because think about how many different languages there are in the world. There are a lot of different words for cat. You know, there are a lot of different words for cat. There are a lot of different words for dog. There's no, no, no biological rule that says it has to be one or the other. So languages come into being and there are many, many different languages. Um, and this relationship is arbitrary it is defined only by contrast, which is to say that the word cat signifies that creature only because it's different from other signifiers, from other words. It wouldn't work if it were the same. So cat is cat because it's not bat, because it's not cap, because it's not dog, because it's not sun. Signifiers signify based on difference because they are different. Now, everyone who's who, here who's tried to study another language just knows the sheer number of vocabulary words you're trying your whole life to learn. You know, they're all these different words. Um, they're all these different words in all these different languages. There are a lot of them to learn, but the point is that, you know, there need to be d different ones because words signify through difference. Okay, again, this all sounds very obvious, but it's going to take on kind of revolutionary signification. So this idea that the relationship between signifier and signified is arbitrary, what Saussure will call unmotivated. It's a matter of convention. It's not natural. It's not biologically driven. It's not imminent. It's not Im there's nothing intrinsic in that combination of sounds that demands that it signify what it signifies. <clears throat> 
Um, now, if you go on in linguistics, you'll learn that there's something called relative motivation that plays a role at different stages of the development of a language when you have you know, the same word that takes on different forms or using the same etymological basis, then there are related words. Uh, but the original starting point is that the relationship is unmotivated. And Sassor says, for there is nothing at all to prevent the association of any idea whatsoever with any sequence of sounds whatsoever. And again, the more languages you study, the more this becomes obvious, you know, because there are just so many different options. Um, okay. Um, now, that said, despite this radical arbitrariness, and this is the second move, despite the fact that there's a radical arbitrariness to the relationship between signifier and signified, that doesn't mean that the relationship is unstable. For Sussur, it is stable. It holds together. It's not that one day we wake up and the word cat refers to that furry creature and the next day it doesn't. No, we wake up secure in the knowledge that the words we used yesterday are going to continue to signify today and tomorrow and so on. Now, why is that? They're held in place. The relationship between signifier and signified is held in place by the structure of the language, by the fact that there's a holistic system. So you get vague echoes of Hegel here, actually, even though we're in a purely synchronic realm, right? The truth is the whole. It's the whole system, it's the whole system of the language that holds the meaning together. Um, no element in the system, Sisor has, says, has meaning apart from the relationship to the whole. Um, and when he talks about this, he makes an absolute distinction between the diachronic plane and the synchronic plane. By diachronic, he just means the vertical plane of time, of temporality. So he says to look at the evolution of language, to look at diachronic linguistics is one field of study. It's not bad, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's a different thing. To look at how language functions as a system synchronically across the horizontal plane of simultaneity is another thing. You know, and for, for Sassur, you do that, you do absolute, it's a Kierkegaardian either or. You do one or you do the other. Neither one is bad, they're just two different fields of study. So we're gonna be talking about the synchronic plane. And one of the things that's going to feel radical about structuralism is that we've spent so much time in this class looking at how history and temporality have been injected into philosophy. And now we're gonna look at structuralism and we're going to be on a purely synchronic plane. We're gonna imagine a, a, a plane of pure simultaneity because um, you can only look at language as it exists at a certain moment. Okay, so that, that's the synchronic. Um, so meaning is based on difference. All meaning is differential. All meaning is relational. It exists only within a given system. If you take that word cat out of the English language, it doesn't signify in the same way anymore. You know, if you show up, you know, if you show up in another place, if you show up in Bulgaria, you know, and you're speaking Bulgarian, cat doesn't signify cat. You know, so it's only holding within a certain system. But it holds. It holds because the system, the structure is holistic and holds the meaning in place. Okay. Does that, does that kind of make sense? 
it's that point of semester where people start getting blank looks on their faces and <laughs> everyone looks very tired and then I'm not sure whether it doesn't make sense or you're just tired because it's that point in the semester. Okay. Um, Yosisor goes on to make points that a community is necessary to establish these values and these relationships between signifier and signified. You know, so you need, you need a group of people speaking a language. It's not enough for like my, my kids when they were younger would spend lots of time inventing their own languages, which made sense to them because they heard lots of different languages. So from their point of view, everyone just spoke their own. Why couldn't they think of their own? Um, and, and, and Tesor says like a community is necessary to establish values. The reason why cat signifies in a stable way is because there is a community of people within this language, within the English language. An individual acting alone you know, cannot establish these values, he says. A language he calls a system in which all the elements fit together and in which the value of any one element depends on the simultaneous coexistence of all the others. Okay. In language itself, Sassor says, there are only differences. Even more important than that is the fact that, although in general a difference presupposes positive terms between which the difference holds, in language there are only differences. Meaning is all about, uh, all about contrast. In order to properly study language, he says, you need to bracket, again we have a kind of bracketing, um, like once you know who Sorelian bracketing, this idea of bracketing will never leave your head. You keep thinking about things that can be bracketed. In order to properly study language, you have to bracket the signified. You bracket the referent. So you bracket the actual cat and you look at how language works. Um, in order to properly study language, the signified has to be placed in brackets. Okay, the signified has to be placed in brackets and you have to look at this axis of simultaneity, at the synchronic plane. Um, and he has a famous chess example, and I'll, I'll read it to you from his book in which he talks, which he uses as a metaphor to reinforce the point about the absolute difference between the diachronic and the synchronic plane. Some of you probably play chess. I don't play chess, but okay. In a game of chess, he says, any given state of the board is totally independent of any previous state of the board. It does not matter at all whether the state in question has been reached by one sequence of moves or another sequence. Anyone who has followed the whole game has not the least advantage over a passerby who happens to look at the game at that particular moment. In order to describe the position on the board, it is quite useless to refer to what happened 10 seconds ago. All this applies equally to a language and confirms the radical distinction between diachronic and synchronic. Speech operates only upon a given linguistic state, and the changes which supervene between one state and another have no place in either. Okay, so that kind of makes sense, like the state of a chessboard at a certain time. I mentioned this once to uh, an analytical philosopher, a friend of mine who was a teenage chess grandmaster and American champion, and he said, well, that's not really true because if you follow the game from the beginning, you have an insight into how the other person is thinking. And like, um, but in general, like the idea of the, the state of the board at any given moment. Um, okay, and then he also says that we never witness the origins of language. We're always already born into language. We don't, we're, not, we're not around when it's being invented. Um, now, there's an exception to this 
um, which I'm only going to spend about 90 seconds on because it's now become a kind of historical curiosity, but one of these historical curiosities that I'm fascinated by, which was the invention of Esperanto, um, which was an attempt by a man named Ludwig Zamenhof, who was a, a Polish Jew who grew up in Białystok. Um, he was born 1859, so same generation, exact same generation um, as, as Husserl, as Freud, as Bergson, as, as Cesur. Um, and he grew up in, in a place that was Polish, Yiddish, Russian, German, and perhaps some other things speaking. Um, he grew up in a very multilingual environment, and then he studied in Warsaw, Moscow, and Vienna, and so he grew up amidst all these languages. Um, and he said, wouldn't, he said, oh, then, and there are, he grew up at a time when there were all, was also an increasing amount of ethnic and national conflict, you know, and he said, what we need is we need an international language, a purely international language that nobody would have, you know, more of a claim on than anybody else that everybody could learn as a second language that would kind of equal the playing field and give everyone a bridge to anyone else. And ideally, it should be a language that's perfectly consistent, has no grammatical exceptions, and is very easy to learn. It's kind of a brilliant idea, um, but it's also kind of crazy. I mean, the idea that you can actually invent a whole language. So he sets about, he's an optometrist, actually. Um, again, you come back to this idea of lenses, Husserl and the lenses, this obsession with lenses, can you see clearly? Okay, so he's, he's, he's an optometrist and he's a lens maker, um, and he starts inventing this language, which is called es Esperanto. Um, and he starts to work on this at, at the age of 15, um, and when he's still in, his, in the late 1880s, um, he starts publishing under the name Dr. Esperanto, which is like Dr. Dr. Hope, um, these ideas about the creation of an international language. And it actually, it gets a lot of momentum. And to this day, there are still people who speak Esperanto. You can go on the internet and find Wikipedia entries in Esperanto. There are books written in Esperanto. But it did not, I mean, it was designed in some ways as a kind of utopian project. And it, it didn't actually save the world to the extent that, you know, he had hoped. But it, it's a very interesting chapter of intellectual history. And I, I won't say anything more about it. But some of you may want to pursue it at some point in the future. Okay. Um, all right. The implications of structural linguistics, now I'm going to move you on to anthropology. Um, so like phenomenology, structuralist linguistics is going to try to make something that's kind of part of human life very scientific, something that is not a hard science into something that's very scientific. It's going to aim for that kind of rigor and objectivity. Um, linguistics is going to become the model to rethink everything. It's going to lead us to something called semiology, semiotics, the idea of to investigating the nature of signs like the, and the laws that govern how signs function. Um, we're always going to be thinking about this decoupling of the signifier and the signified so we can think about them separately. This insistence on looking at the synchronic um, looking about looking at how the system functions as a whole at a given moment, and this idea of meaning being, being relational. You can't really understand any given term without understanding how everything fits together. Terms have meaning, signifiers have meaning only by virtue of their relations with one another. This idea that meaning is relational, 
will keep coming back again and again. Like, I know that sounds banal, but just like put it in your head. Meaning is relational. You hear this from the structuralist all the time. Um, and from that, the idea that meaning is not substantive in some sense, it's relational. We're going to get this idea that language doesn't necessarily express or reflect pre-given meaning or pre-given content. Rather, language is going to produce that meaning. And so we're, go we're going to get a kind of inversion. Signs and signifiers are going to structure thought. You know, they're going to structure how we think. Um, and this is how we're going to move from linguistics to cultural anthropology. We're going to start looking at the world as a kind of system of signs expressing ideas. Um, now this was, this structuralist influence was very important um, for Russian formalism, for what is going to become Prague structuralism. I will take you back to one of my favorite historical characters, who is Roman Jakobson, who was the very precocious uh, wunderkind linguist, who when he's still a teenager starts up this Moscow linguistic circle and is then working with Shklovsky and Mayakovsky and Liliabrick and Osipbrick um, in Petersburg in a club they put together called the Society for the Study of Poetic Language. This is where we get Ostranyenya from. The idea of Leo, the, the importance of poetic language is that the words jump out at you as words. You draw attention to language as language. So a lot of this will be drawing attention to language as language. Um, okay, this turning the attention to the signifier, to the palpability of signs, language as being in a self-conscious relationship to itself, kind of rethinking everything with this attention on language. Um, okay. Um, the, as we had in the, the Russian Futurist, and Jakobsen gives a, a kind of historic lecture about what Kruchonik and Klebnikov do with this, the word as such. What does it mean to look at the word as if it were a thing? To decouple it from the thing it represents and look at the word as a thing. Um, now, what happens then is that Ro Roman Jakobsen, who would really deserve a whole course to himself, so he's this very precocious, um, young wunderkind linguist who's hanging out with these crazy avant-garde poets and also playing lots of cards and drinking lots of vodka and doing all sorts of other things. He leaves Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution Civil War um, with a Red Cross mission and goes to Prague. Um, and he shows up in Prague um, like 1920, very shortly after, you know, shortly after the country comes into being, um, this new country created as interwar Czechoslovakia. Um, he doesn't speak Czech at the time, but for some reason, by all accounts, within like the next three weeks, he's speaking Czech. Not only is he speaking Czech, but he's hanging out at like the very cool hip cafes with like all the very cool hip poets and novelists and philosophers and, and writers. And Interwar Prague would not have been what it was had Roman Jakobson not shown up there. He shows up and then he gathers these linguists around himself and starts a, a club um, called um, the, the Prague Linguistic Circle that is going to become the center of this development of, of structuralist thought. Um, and and ja Jakobson is a genius in all sorts of ways. He's also a very charismatic figure. Um, okay. Um, all right, so in the middle of the Bolshevik Civil War, 1920, Jakobsen leaves Russia for Prague. As soon as he gets to Prague, he starts trying to persuade Viktor Shklovsky to join him in Prague. This is a little bit of a footnote, but it's a, it's a great correspondence, so I'm going to read you some 
quotes anyway. Um, so Shklovsky, who like is, I mean, Shklovsky is in the Bolshevik Civil War. He seems to be like a, a cat, going back to the cat, has nine lives. It's amazing he's not killed many times over. Um, but he, he isn't, and then he ends up in Berlin at a certain point. He's always flitting around somewhere else. Um, and Jakobsen's trying to convince him to come to Prague, you know, and, and join his group of, you know, hip intellectuals thinking about linguistics. And, and Shklovsky writes to him and says, to live in Prague and believe you're living in Europe is foolish. And then he says, are you wearing those little round glasses? All the Jews are wearing them. Don't be an assimilator. Um, okay. Um, so, so Prague, which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's now the capital of the new Czechoslovak state. Czech is a language that had nearly died out until it was revived by a patriotic linguist in the previous century. You know, and now Jakobsen is going to gather the most kind of radically cosmopolitan crowd to discuss linguistics in Czech. Um, and I'll, I'll read you from the memoirs of, of one of the participants. He says, um, at the meetings of the Prague Linguistic Circle, seldom was Czech without an accent heard. Even those who hardly knew how to speak any other language but their native Czech acquired a queer pronunciation after some time. Okay. Um, later on, Ma in the 1930s, Jakobsen is going to team up with someone, a young philosopher named Jan Patochka, to bring Husserl to Prague. That I'll tell you in a subsequent lecture. Okay, 1938, Munich Conference, which I keep going back to, Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia. Roman Jakobsen is a Jew. He knows that he has to get out. He flees Prague. Um, so March, so September 1938, Hitler annexes the Sudetenland, and then March 1939, um, the, the German army invades the rest of Czechoslovakia. Slovakia becomes a quasi-autonomous Catholic fascist state under Nazi tutelage, and Bohemia and Moravia, which are the Czech parts, kind of more Western parts of Czechoslovakia, come under German occupation. You know, at that point, Jakobsen realizes he has to leave. He flees to Scandinavia via the United States. He gets to the United States, and he runs into somebody he knows in Prague. Um, who he runs into is somebody named Alexander Koira, um, who is another native Russian speaker um, from the Russian Empire, who studied with Husserl um, in Göttingen and was then living in Prague for a while and now has also escaped to the States. Um, and had previously then, after he studied with Husserl, had this philosophical career in France. He was one of those four native Russian speakers who played crucial roles in the translation of Husserlian phenomenology into French. It's a very interesting story. Anyway, Koira runs into Jakobsen in New York. Um, and in New York, he also runs into, you know, an, a, a French, you know, Belgian-born anthropologist named Claude Lévi-Strauss, who was born in 1908, who is also a Jew, who is also fleeing the Nazis, you know, and Clara has this idea that he's going to introduce Jakobsen to Claude Lévi-Strauss. And this is one of these legendary meetings, you know, because... All of, all of what will become then structural linguistics is going to come out of, of this meeting in, in New York. I'm very sorry I wasn't there. Um, so Levi Strauss is a very interesting, uh, he's a very interesting 
character who is an anthropologist, you know, and had been doing field work, ethnographic field work in, in Latin America, you know, and studying indigenous tribes and studying indigenous ways of life and living very far away from these like hip cafes and urban areas where Jakobsen's been hanging out. Um, and Jakobsen describes this um, in his memoirs. He talks about first about Klebnikov. He says, my admiration for Klebnikov when I met him grew and grew. This was one of the most impetuous impressions of a person I've had in my life, one of three absorbing sensations of having unexpectedly encountered a genius. First, there was Klebnikov. A year later, the linguist Nikolai Sergeyevich Trubetskoy, and some three decades later, Claude Levi Strauss. Okay, um, all right, so this collaboration, these two minds are going to produce kind of a revolution in intellectual history. The goal is going to be to uncover the deep laws governing cultural systems. So Levi-Strauss is going to take off from the presupposition that culture is very capaciously understood it includes a lot of things, tools, institutions, customs, belief, art, knowledge, language. It's also, he's also going to take the Freudian premise that a lot of culture operates at the level of the unconscious. So you're trying to uncover the deep workings of cultural systems that operate at the level of the unconscious. Then he's going to go on to ask, so what can anthropologists, what can cultural anthropologists learn from, ling from linguistics? And here I'll, I'll read you a little bit of his language. Is the system systematic? Levi-Strauss asked. Such a question which seems absurd at first is absurd only in relation to language, for language is the semantic system par excellence. It cannot but signify and exist only through signification. On the contrary, this question must be rigorously examined as we move from the study of language to the consideration of other systems, which also claim to have semantic functions, but whose fulfillment remains partial, fragmentary, or subjective, like art, social organization, and so forth. But importantly, he says, we must never lose sight of the fact that in both anthropological and linguistic research, we are dealing strictly with symbolism. We're dealing strictly with signifiers. So there's, and he's, the, the text I gave you for today is a text about a kinship system. And he's going to look for an analogy between how a culture, how, how a culture organizes the meaning of relationships within families. And he's going to look at that on the analogy of linguistic signs. He says the kinship system is a language. Um, and that kinship rela relations can be structured like Cicero's systems of signs whose units have value only in the coordination of their differences. Um, a kinship system, how families are structured, the significance that different relationships have, does not exist, he says, in objective ties of descent. It doesn't it exist in objective blood ties between individuals. It exists only in human consciousness. It's an arbitrary system of representations, not the spontaneous development of a real situation. Um, and he uses this example of, of an avunculate, which is a close social relationship between a maternal uncle and, and the nephew. Now, note when you read this, note that when he says affinity, yeah, affinity means for Levi-Strauss a relationship, a family relationship that is not by blood. 
so via marriage or, or other ties. Okay, so in order to understand this, how the significance of this particular relationship, the avunculate within this culture, we have to treat it as one relationship within a system, and the system has to be considered as a whole. Okay, um, you'll also note this preoccupation with the incest taboo, which also comes largely from Freud. Freud has this idea that the incest taboo is one of the original ta primordial taboos as culture is emerging from the state of nature. Um, okay. Um, everything in classical structuralism is going to be about differences. You'll see a lot of binaries. A lot of relationships are going to be mapped as binaries. Good, bad, hot, cold, raw, cooked, high, low. Um, a lot of classical structuralism, as you see it coming through Levi-Strauss's anthropology, will go through the, these binaries. Um, and then he'll have some interesting observations thrown in, like, in human society, it is men who exchange the women and not vice versa. I'll let you reflect on that. Um, okay, I, I also want to say a little bit in the last five minutes about his ideas about myth, because that's going to be crucial when we talk about Gerard. Um, he has a lot of work on myth that's very important. Um, a kind of structuralist analysis of narrative and the idea that all sorts of myths that appear in all sorts of human cultures, you know, including oral cultures and indigenous cultures, you know, and cultures that don't have a big written literature are basically variations on a set number of themes and there are some constant universal structures that misfunction like a kind of language whose units can be broken down the way an analogy, the way you break language down into units of, of sound um, and into the smallest units of sound and then are combined in ways that have a grammar that can be understood in the analogy with linguistic grammar. The grammar Levi-Strauss believed was inherent in, in the human mind. He sees these myths as devices for classifying and organizing human reality and as imaginary resolutions of real social contradictions. So you see there's a lot of like, there's something that's taken from Hegel about the wholeness. There's a lot of Freud and the idea of the unconscious. Um, there's bracketing. You know, there's a lot of elements that have come from, from other things that we've read. Okay. Um, now the mind that's doing all this thinking for myth is not the mind of an individual human subject. In some ways, it's myths kind of thinking their way through people as opposed to vice versa. So there's a radical decentering of the human subject. The human subject is not producing meaning. You know, the human subject is more being produced by language than, than vice versa. Um, he will also say, and we'll, well, I'll get back to this next time, I just want to note it here, that many myths begin with a crisis of a lack of differentiation. So in language, everything is held together by difference, by the fact that words are distinct, that something is X and not Y, that it's high and not low. You know, and Levi-Strauss will, will, will start up this discussion of myth as coming into being when there's a crisis, and that crisis comes not when there's too much difference, but when there's too little difference. When there's some kind of crisis of differentiation. Um, okay. Let me, let me, in the last couple minutes, um, take you through some of the criticism of, of structuralism. There's a feeling that reality loses its imminent, inherent nature. Um, that everything is just about symbols interacting with other symbols. 
there's a feeling of relativism about it, that values have meaning only in relation to other values. It's criticized for effectively diminishing, if not abolishing, the human subject and human experience, bracketing life, history, subjectivity, bracketing both object and subject, for that matter. You're bracketing both the object and the subject, you know, and that's its own way of overcoming the problem of the bridge. Um, and instead looking at how at how different signifiers kind of interact with other signifiers. So structuralism is ahistorical, but also kind of amoralizing in the sense that it tries, tends to shy away from value judgments. Agency is, is dispersed, um, and agency is dispersed largely in language. Okay, I only have two minutes left, so let me tell you some things I want you to think about for next time. It's striving to be scientific. Um, meaning reveals itself as being profoundly contingent because of the arbitrary nature of the linguistic sign. Meaning is neither natural nor universal. It's not intrinsic but relational. You know, it's not in that sense the thing itself that is the thing itself, but rather relations between terms that, that hold things together. Um, it presupposes a totality. It only, the system only works when something is kind of keeping things together as a whole. You know, so structuralist and modernist converge with the idea of arbitrariness, but structuralist and Hegelians converge with the idea of, of the whole, of, of totality. Um, so everything, everything ultimately means something within this holistic structure. Um, the shift in emphasis from the diachronic plane to the synchronic plane. The decentering of the human subject. The subject is no longer the source of meaning. The impersonal nature of structuralism. The bracketing of life to look at signs that are representing life. Okay. Um, meaning is relational, and in some sense, the relation precedes the parts, but it's, it's even more kind of primordial in a certain way. It's a reconfiguration of the subject-object paradigm in a way that effectively brackets both object and subject. Um, it rethinks all of human life on the model of language. It's going to lead us into what will later be called the linguistic turn, which is an attempt to understand history, to understand literature, you know, to understand anthropology in terms of language. Everything is going to become a kind of linguistic construct. So when the subject is squashed, we're then going to ask later on, where does that subject go? Um, the impulse in some ways is analogous to phenomenology. Can we bracket the world and try to understand how we understand it? The idea that there's no real substance, there's only form, form is everything. We're gonna go back to this question, is there reference beyond the text? Um, but what, where we're really going to here is a kind of slipping away of subjectivity that will come later, but now we're bracketing. We're bracketing the subject as we decenter it. Um, I'll take you then next week into Girard, who is very closely related to Levi-Strauss and develops his ideas in dialogue with Levi-Strauss. It's going to get much darker. Um, we're going to go from God is dead to the author is dead to meaning as a construct of languages. And I just want to, want to leave with one sentence, which is a critique of Levi-Strauss by the anthropologist Clifford Geertz, who says, Levi-Strauss's search is, after all, not for men, whom he doesn't quite care for, but for man as such, with whom he is enthralled. Okay, I'll see you on Monday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. 
podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.